Thank you. No, thanks, guys. And I, I really not often I get to talk to artists and uh, not often I get to talk to artists and photographers. I'm, I'm stuck talking to all these boring doctors. <laughs> well, so that's my point. I'm Todd Fredericks, uh, so assistant professor. I keep wanting to say associate. I got to wait a year. Ass assuming that works. <laughs> assistant for tenure is coming. Assistant professor of family medicine at Ohio University family, uh, Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. I have a head cold, so my brain is not firing well right now. And this is a Rotations podcast, and this is Nisar Bakshi, our host, uh, OMS2. Yes, thank you for tuning in. Um, this is a, a continuation of our discussion with Dr. Michael Gibson, uh, interventional cardiologist from Harvard. Uh, thank you again for joining us. Thanks, guys. Yeah, and, and again, we here we have uh, Ms. Lori Esposito, uh, educator and uh, artist, talking about her work as well as how it uh, interacts with healing and, and the art process. And uh, hello. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and we have Stephen McNulty here as well, again, one of my colleagues who is here talking about his work as a photographer and how it impacts how he sees medicine. Hi, all. Thanks for having me. Of course. So last time, um, you know, we were talking a lot about burnout and how. Um, we can sort of deter those effects by pursuing things that we're interested in. And I wanted to ask Stephen, uh, you know, burnout isn't just in physicians, right? We're also seeing it in medical students. So, you know, medical students have such busy schedules. How are you able to balance that photography and, and everything that you do on, on the art artistic side of things with, with everything that we have to do for school? You know, I ask myself that a lot. How am I going to do all of this? And um, chiseling out time that is not studying is critical. Um, because we do burn out. We, I, I burn out on almost a daily basis. You get to the point where no matter how many times you run your eyes over the words, no more information is going to go into that sponge between your ears. It's just, <laughs> it, it, you're just kind of throwing water at a wall. It's not going to go in. Um, so you, you just stop. Uh, go for a run. Uh, watch TV. Do something completely different. Uh, just go over to a friend's house and play board games. Um, and then the next morning you wake up and you have your coffee and you find, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe I'll just do an hour, do an hour. Okay. That hour went all right. So you know, I'll, I'll do another couple hours. Um, and you just kind of have to keep doing it. There, there's no other way, but putting one foot in front of the other. Sure. And, and Dr. Gibson, you mentioned last week, uh, that you, uh, encourage a lot of your students to paint out the angiograms. You have those parties. Uh, what sorts of other creative outlets do you, uh, encourage those students to pursue? Well, whatever turns them on, I have people who are musicians, a lot of those that seems to go well with medicine. Some of them have little recording studios in their home. We have a big piano at home and we all gather around and we do karaoke and sing, you know, so uh, it's always. What's your uh, go-to karaoke song? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to go. That's a <laughs> Should we save that for next it's, week? It's, it's it, by it's, 50 Cent, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah, everyone has fun. You know, I think uh, we, we love a little bit of everything. Uh, what what impact do you think that has on education when we're talking about these uh, sort of more artistic pursuits? Uh, and, you know, you mentioned that you went to an undergrad program that focused heavily on the arts. Um, what? How did that affect your pursuit of medicine? I think, you know, when you look back through the history of innovation, um, it's really it's a bit of an IQ thing, but really once you hit 130 or so, it's mostly all creative, you know, and, you know, when you look at Einstein's experiments, they were thought experiments. They're very creative thought experiments. So anything that changes things, anything that's novel or new, is usually an act of creation. 
not an act of brute force kind of IQ. I, I can't even imagine how IQ would really lead to innovation. For me, I think it's mostly all creative acts. Maybe they are intelligent with math and everything, but underlying even great math, the most basic of sciences is great creativity. I'm going to add something to that real quick, and I'll see what you think of this. But I have lately been talking to students about, um, because I, I would identify myself as a burned out physician, um, I started looking at each case as a creative process that even my chart, how can I create the perfect chart? How can I create the perfect patient encounter? And it has helped me mentally. And I'm not sure if that paradigm works in education. If we start training our students to say, look, this isn't just nug work. This is something that's you. It's a reflection of your, you and your process in this relationship. And the words do mean things. And I try to have a narrative that allows me to look back and say, who was that person as opposed to just the rote mechanization of medicine? And I think Maybe there's a benefit that, like, I don't know if you agree with that, if that's a reasonable thing to pursue, but I, I'm looking in this very mechanistic, technocratic world of medicine we've created, how we re-inject aesthetic into our encounters with our patients. And I'm wondering if you have some thoughts on that. Well, you know, I think it's fascinating. If you, it really gets back to this. If you just ticked boxes off on the electronic medical record, that is what hospital administrators should view as the perfect encounter. You know, it would have all the information and all the data there, but it would be completely devoid of saying anything really about that patient. And what's fascinating to me psychologically is as you read the note, you're also getting all those subtle emotional cues about the patient that wouldn't be there in tick boxes. For me, that's why tick boxes could never replace a physician encounter because, you know, it's all those little subtle words that really paint the picture of the patient. So you do your, use your language to convey, you know, she looks tired today, she looks spent, she appears, you know, more weak than usual. And there's no amount of tick boxes, there's no amount of words that can replace you looking at that patient at three in the morning and instantly knowing, are you sick? Are you going south? You're flying straight and knowing whether you got to walk or run. And do you think, you know, speaking as a medical student, obviously I've never seen a patient uh, as a physician, but uh, you know, a lot of what we learn is mechanistic and a lot of what we learn is the basic science behind things. So do you think then maybe medical education should focus more on that artistic side or is that something that we should leave for residency and that internship year to figure out? This is probably shouldn't say this, but I, I think the first two years of medical school should be replaced by just getting in there and starting. I think what medical school, sh we should move so much of that into pre-medical work and be done. You don't need biochemistry again. Uh, what you need what you need in medical school are more courses on how to evaluate data. You need more rigorous statistical courses and courses on how to quantitate the evidence. But it's a strictly a 10,000-hour thing. You, you know, you gotta, you got to be in front of people for 10,000 hours to begin to build those instinctive, subconscious, you're not even thinking about it. It's called thin slicing, where you're just kind of reacting, and you don't even know why you know the person's sick, but you say, oh, my God, he's really sick. Oh, my God, i got to do this. So, But that you won't read that in any textbook. You've got to experience it. So I think we need to replace books with people and experience. 
Dr. Gibson, please tell the AAMC to get rid of biochemistry and medical school. That would be fantastic. <laughs> before next yeah. week. Yeah, before, before, before boards. That would be great. Uh, but a, as a student, as a trainee, um, I wonder if we need to learn the rules first, as an artist does, so that we can break them. To, you know, to, to master the, the concepts and the rules and learn all of the, the mechanistic things before we can actually get to your level and, and recognize it at, you know, uh, at first glance. You need things that are better than a textbook of saying, like ver word descriptions of all these kinds of things you're going to see in practice. You need pictures. That's why, you know, with Wikidoc, the textbook that I run, we try and put so many pictures up and so many videos up because those are worth a thousand words. There's just no replacing uh, that kind of uh, content. Well, I mean, this just makes me think about um, just the history of beauty, like the evolution of beauty and taste which is so much pandering to the desires of any given culture at that time. And then, you know, you, you begin to realize that as an artist, like you're, what you're really looking at is anomalies. And anomalies can be thought of as ugly or something that we look away for, from, maybe stands in the way of beauty, but actually becomes fundamental to like political change um, and, and, and just, you know, is fundamental in, in social justice. Yeah, that's, mm -hmm. that's a great point. And, and we talk a little bit about innovation uh, and, and how that's a creative, usually a creative breakthrough rather than something more mechanistic. So uh, do you think then that the focus that we have on this more mechanistic side of medicine dampens innovation in our field? Or do you not see that as a problem? We need people to be much more educated quantitatively, you know, how to evaluate all the data that's out there and all the statistical issues. But I think on the other hand, um, all the data is, you know, you use your ectopic brain to get all the information. You don't need to memorize all that information. You need to know how to digest it. And then you need to be spending more of your time thinking about the creative way that you can move beyond that data. So I, I just think there's too much time spent memorizing things that could just be looked up. Sure. And not enough time spent on teaching people how to be critical of that information. If I look at your Flickr page, what I see is an eclectic approach to art. You don't have, you, you mentioned sort of a pointillist study previously, and I, I, don't, I see it all over. So I'm, I'm wondering is, does that, is that a reflection of who you are as a physician too? Are you an eclectic when it comes to the practice of cardiology in terms of, I take anything and everything from everywhere to make, make things work, or are you more linear in terms of how you practice medicine like? Yeah, no, I'm completely nonlinear. And, um, you know, I think if you look at Twitter, too, I'm all over the place. <laughs> yes, and, you are. And, and I, but I think that's because I like jumping from silo to silo to silo. I, but I also, when I do jump into a silo, I drill very deeply. But I, I think your intellectual landscape is both breadth and depth. People seem to always focus on depth. But I think breadth is important, too. And I, I have to say, everything that I learn reading in different magazines and different fields often informs me about my very intense research interests. So I think you got to look around to get ideas. So I have a follow-up question to that then. When you're training residents and fellows, do you, do you try to identify those people that do find themselves getting into a trap of linearity and encourage them to become more eclectic? For my research team, it's a little bit like a sports team. You know, I'm glad to have people who have very deep knowledge in certain areas who have uh, OCD who are very concrete in their thinking. <laughs> and, you know, I think, you know, that you need those people who can find, you know, every typo or problem in a document. And then you need other people who are flying at 100,000 feet 
uh, to have uh, a bigger picture. So there's a role for everyone on a team. And I don't, I often don't try and change people. I, I, I think the better thing is to put them in a position that optimizes their uh, skills, you know, for the team rather than try and change them. Although I do push them a little bit. Sure. And, and you mentioned a little bit about um, your evolution as an artist, about going from photography to painting and now, you know, getting even into sculpture. What I'm curious about, and I'd, I'd be curious to hear Laurie and Stephen's opinion on this as well, is does that evolution in art uh, mirror any sort of what's going on in your life as well, or are those completely disjointed? Uh, maybe, you know, I, I, I don't know. You know, I mean, I was, I was, uh, my father had died and I was doing a lot of black and white photography. You know, I was living, I was divorced and separated and at a dark point of my life. So maybe I was black and white, you know, maybe that was part of why I was so black and white. And then maybe, you know, my more colorful representation now is, you know, picking up on a happier part of my life. Maybe, I'm not sure, but I don't know what texture means, but you know, I, I think so often people say, boy, why didn't, uh, why didn't, um, you know, Sally Mann just stick with pictures of her kids. You know, she's doing something new now. I loved her when she did this, or I loved that band when they were just doing this. Why don't they do that forever? And, uh, you know, when you say the artist, why aren't you still doing that? They're like, well, I was bored with that. I wanted to move on and grow and change. And um, we want everyone to keep creating what we thought they were doing that we liked, but they have to follow their own path. What do you think, Laurie? Um, I mean, what you say about... Um pain maybe in moments in your life that um, drove you to be an artist. Um, I identify with that. Absolutely. Um, you know, there's been a lot of conversation so far about like, how do you make time for your art? Where do you fit it in? You know, how do you, how do you do that? How do you, you know, um, discipline yourself? But I think there's also like the sort of looking through the under, other end of that too, which is, you know, making art can enable you actually to live life. Um, that was certainly the case for me. My sister um, committed suicide in 2012. The pain was, uh, the experience of pain from the grieving process was debilitating for me in terms of like making very technical, highly detailed representational work. Um, and so I changed my form and my process um, to accommodate who I who I was at that moment, where I was in life at that moment, so that I was able to continue being an artist. It transformed me as an educator um, in social justice, and it, it just mobilized um, it mobilized me as a, as a person who could have actual impact um, on others. And and I think I heard a very similar story from Stephen as well. You know, it's just, you have this kind of realization or a kind of epiphany where. Um, the art is enabling you to be a, a whole person um, or to maybe um, be able to survive, you know, um, transitional times that might be difficult otherwise. I started walking and it wasn't an intentional thing at first. It was all I could stand doing. And uh, it wasn't until later on that I found out that walking uh, was a genre of art and that walking could be thought of as a creative act, not just as a sport. But it also rehabilitated me physically um, in terms of stress, in terms of balance and strength. Um, so that was, that was a huge um, turning point for me.
Sure. And, and you've talked before about actually using art to heal, right? Can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, it's really um, founded on this um, idea that art isn't something that's separate from our lives. It's something that we come to, and then we have this great term um, in the arts called practice-led research. You, know, you, you start doing something, and then you start understanding what it is and what its sort of global implications are later on. Sure. So then, you know, we're talking about all this art and, and looking at things through that lens. But I guess my question is, what, a, what about interventional cardiology uh, stood out to you that you chose that in addition to all the work that you do with photography and with art? You know, why did you also choose to, to pursue interventional cardiology within medicine? Well, uh, you know, I, I just feel like I'm so lucky because, you know, um, Interventional cardiology lets me do everything I love to do. I mean, I, I get to run these big trials to study the practices. I love working with my hands uh, as both an artist and as a physician. Um, I'm treating a patient, but it's very visually oriented. You know, I look at pictures all day. I look at black and white pictures all day. And, and I've looked at more of them than anyone in the world. I run a core lab I have for 30 years now where we analyze all the films from the trials. So... And I invented the measurements we use on those angiograms to measure blood flow. And one of the funny things going back to photography is I learned uh, there's a pile of 27 films. They said, go take these films and analyze them. And I didn't have a projector to play them. They just had this little machine where I'd literally look at one frame at a time and then it would project up into a computer. So I learned angiography one image at a time and that really then colored what i did research wise i invented what's called the frame count where we counted how many movie frames uh, are there till the die gets down the artery and i turned the angiogram into a stopwatch and that's how we now 2000 papers later it's called the frame count you know one thirtieth of a second and so i used my photography training to turn an angiogram into a series of still images and then, as my mother said, you know, you can never paint, see a cloud the same again once you paint it. I painted angiograms. There's always this funny little part where the dye left the artery and entered the heart muscle. And I was trying to paint the dye going into the heart muscle. And then we began to study that and measure it. We used computers to measure how big and how bright it was. And that's called the blush, the myocardial blush, which is what I invented. And it turned out that it was all about the dye getting into the heart muscle that predicted whether you were going to live or die. And it was a fascinating journey telling everyone, stop looking at the artery. Stop looking at the pipe. You need to stop looking at those things you're fixing all day. And you need to look at the heart muscle and the dye getting into the heart muscle. And they all thought I was crazy. But now hundreds and hundreds of paper, if not thousands, now show what I originally invented is true. You can open up an artery, but unless you get the blood going into the heart muscle, it doesn't even matter. So it really was, uh, for me, my grayscale kind of calibrationist photographer really was applied on a daily basis to, you know, caring for patients. That's just incredible. And that goes back to what you were talking about before with innovation being uh, a creative pursuit. Um, right. Yeah. You know, we're, we're fortunately running out of time here. Wait, but I, if his, if, he's out of time. I, there's someone, he's got yeah. 16 different phone calls. He's <laughs> got lots of angiograms to read. Some person just rolled into the ER that needs yeah. to, needs to be reperfused right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Thank you this so is, much for joining us. This, this has just been a great conversation. It's been really interesting. And, and so wonderful to see this side of you because we can go through PubMed and we can see one side of you. But right. I think it's really inspirational for, for med students, especially as medical educators, to say, look, this is a whole person's life, not just being doing, you know, PCI. It's, it's just really, really been fun. And, and it's very generous of you to take the time in front of your Larry King wall to tell <laughs> us, you know, all about this. It's been a wonderful, wonderful hour. Thank you so much. And thank much. you to our panelists as well for coming out and joining us and for talking sure. about art. Thank you, uh, maybe sometime in a year's time, can we hit you up again for something novel? Oh, sure. Anytime you guys want anything coming out in the world, anything going on, like the diabetes meeting, you name it, any controversies, just call me up. Awesome. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining us. And yeah, this has been another episode of Rotations. Hopefully you all enjoyed this discussion about art and medicine and using that perspective to innovate. Thanks, guys. That's great. Thanks, Dr. Gibson. Thank you. Take care. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medical and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. Rotations is a product of the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine and the Scripps College of Communications. Rotations is hosted by Nisarg Bakshi, produced by Todd Fredericks, audio engineered by Kyle Snyder, and video edited by Brian Plough. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we even pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted. While we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we do reserve rights to all the content. You may reuse Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without the express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments or suggestions that you might have about how we make the show better, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediamedicine.com and putting the word rotations in the subject line. <laughs>